back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vakalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. My guest is James Comey, and he is out with a brand new novel. It's his first novel. It's called Central Park West. It's a crime novel. It's a thriller. It's available everywhere, and everybody recognizes James Comey from when he was Director Comey of the FBI. That kind of culminated his career in public service over the years. And as we jump right into this this book, this thriller that took me about two or three hours to read one night, it kept me glued, Jim. When you sat down to write this thing, you had to have had more in it because the life of a DA or of a federal prosecutor is not all as glamorous as it is in these books and not all as exciting. So how did you condense the life of these prosecutors into something to make it sound so thrilling? I tried to picture both the cases that I did as a mob prosecutor in New York in the 90s and the work that my oldest daughter, who's a federal prosecutor, was doing, thought about the real cases and tried to tell it in as real a way as possible. It was actually really exciting when I did the work. And so I tried to put myself back in those cases and bring the reader with me. And the, the way this book's set up, there's, there's different cases going on, and they all seem to touch on one another. But you have a lot in here that you explain in novel format about the relationship between the Manhattan DA's office and the U.S. Attorney's office. And there's a lot of talk about turf and talent. Can you explain how those two offices work together and sometimes work against each other? Yeah, they're two great offices. They're separated by about 100 yards in lower Manhattan, and they're like siblings. They, they uh, get along on holidays, and they fight like crazy a lot of the rest of the time. And so it's a weird, um, uneven relationship. Sometimes they work jointly. Sometimes they fight over the same cases. When I was the chief federal prosecutor in New York, I worked really hard to build a relationship with them by taking the, the DA out to lunch on a regular basis. I'm not sure how much progress I made, but it's, so it's both great and terrible at times. Is the Manhattan DA, I mean, that's a state-level prosecution versus the U.S. attorneys. Does the Manhattan DA have to take everything that comes in, whereas the U.S. attorneys can pick and choose the cases, and they generally don't take one until they're proven eight ways till Sunday, and so your, your chance of not being able to prove, you, you've got better witnesses, it seems like, at the federal level. Is that really a thing? That is exactly right. Federal prosecutors have very little mandatory jurisdiction. I think when I was in charge in Manhattan, our only mandatory jurisdiction was crimes committed at the Statue of Liberty because it was exclusive federal property. The problem for the DA is anything that happens on your territory and the police make an arrest, you have to make a prosecutive decision. You could dismiss it or prosecute it. The feds can pick and choose. I'm not a football player, but like a free safety in football, they, they sometimes change to find a way to make a tackle, and the DA has no such freedom. Something else that you discuss in the book is, it was just kind of an interesting little aside, is the criminal courts building in New York City, the building itself. We're all familiar with what they show us on Law and & Order and the different New York City-based crime shows, but the criminal courts building in New York isn't sound as glamorous as it looks on TV. No, it's not. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, <laughs> but it has kind of a Soviet vibe to it. What you see on TV are these sweeping steps. Uh, which is just one building down from where the real action happens. There are no sweeping steps. There's five steps at one end, six at the other end, and this drab, greenish-looking stone building is where the Manhattan DA does his work. So the, the, the way that this all works, there's a, a federal murder case involved here, and your book talks about the nexus. And can you explain how that works with a federal murder? Because it's not like there's a lot of federal murders prosecuted. That's right. To prosecute a murder federally under laws passed by Congress, a federal prosecutor typically has to find a connection or a nexus 
to another federal crime. So let's say a drug organization, it's illegal under federal law, all laws, to distribute, say, cocaine. If a killing happens in the course of that drug operation, Congress has said a federal prosecutor can reach that, or a federal prosecutor can reach a murder by a mafia organization that's also being charged with a border racketeering offense. There are a lot of homicides happen around our country that can't be reached by federal prosecutors because they don't have that nexus to something that Congress has made a separate federal crime. How long has it been since you were actively prosecuting before you went on to the FBI? I stopped being U.S. Attorney in 2000 and well, Deputy Attorney General in 2005. So I think that was the last time I was actively prosecuting. So the way prosecutions work now, there's a term in the book that's called digital dust. And I, I suppose that's something that just becomes more and more, the dust becomes darker and more, more set in its ways over the years. With the, with, the, with the way the digital dust works, that's something that you probably saw the beginning stages of in your prosecutor career, right? I did. Uh, both as a line prosecutor, I started to see it in the 90s, and then it exploded around the early 2000s. And when I came back to government as the FBI director, it was a huge part of every FBI investigation. Digital dust meaning those little traces of ourselves that we leave when we click on something or purchase something or go through a toll booth, those sorts of things. When you're prosecuting mob cases, I know that a lot of times these cases have to be made with testimony of less than savory characters. That we, we see some of that in the book, and just in real life it happens. And so when you're essentially, uh, for lack of a better term, making deals with the devil, what are you aware of as a prosecutor when you're talking to these folks and trying to sift out what the truth actually is? You can't ever forget that they're bad people that, and that they are where they are in a mob organization because they are survivors and really good at lying. I mean, most top mobsters are only there because they're both tough and sneaky, and so you have to n never, ever forget that. The challenge of making criminal cases it, like that is that bad people tend not to hang out with good people. So if you're going to hear, hear about what bad people do, have done, you're going to have other bad people as your witnesses. I used to train my folks, never forget who they are. They are a loaded gun pointed at you and pointed at justice. So corroborate them, find neutral evidence to check their story, always worry about whether you're getting it right from them. When you decide as a prosecutor to make a deal with somebody that's situated that way, what is the, the consideration like in your mind when you decide who to go along with? I mean, are these tough decisions you have to make that, well, we're going to let this guy slide because he's providing us evidence with somebody else? Very hard. And really the calculus you made is what is the benefit justice from making a deal with this person and and it's one of the reasons you almost never flip people downward that is start at the top of an organization and get witnesses to tell you about lesser people that really doesn't make any sense so the goal in these enterprise investigations is always bottom up taking lower level people giving them a potential break so they give you a greater good for society which is a case against the, the more culpable the more serious offenders up the line I'm chatting with James Comey about his new crime novel, Central Park West. It is available everywhere, and I love the fact that you've started writing fiction. And, of course, my first thought when I saw it is, I know you've written nonfiction books. They've been bestsellers. But, you know, I mean, Bill Clinton has his name on novels, and I think James Patterson or somebody else does a lot of that writing. And I thought in the back of my mind, all right, did he really write this book? I started reading it, and I thought there's no way you didn't write it because the insight was so particular to what it is that you couldn't have done it anywhere else. And so... When you sit down to write a novel and you have that freedom, do you still have to, do you, do you, do you like take, being able to take liberties that you probably couldn't take if you were writing a nonfiction book? Yes. 
that's one of the things that makes it more fun is that I can take people inside parts of the FBI, inside investigations, inside courtrooms and conference rooms through the through fiction that I couldn't or, or I would have to try and force fit it with nonfiction. And so it's actually a really cool way to show people these institutions. And, and I've worked very hard to make it as real as I could possibly get it, to check every fact and make sure that I've got the depiction accurate, but it's fiction, so I have freedom to take you in different places. Because of your government service, are you on a list of people that have to have everything cleared before you publish anything? I, I don't have to have everything cleared. The good thing about fiction is I don't, as long as I'm not through my fiction, giving away FBI information secrets. But if even in fiction, if I were going to do that, I'd have to have them clear it for me. So who makes that decision as to whether or not you, you may not think you're giving away a secret and you inadvertently do? Does somebody actually look at this to make sure you don't? I, I don't have to have people read it in advance. And I'm sure if I screwed something up, they will tell me down the road, uh, take a look at the book and say, hey, you went too far here, you went too far there. I actually moved, made a couple of slight changes to protect sources and methods in the book, move the location of a couple things. It still gives people a clear picture, but doesn't give something away. I do notice you have a love for baseball, or somebody in your family has a love for baseball, because right at the beginning of the book, there's, there's talk about the whole idea of Elysian Fields and Cooperstown and the beginnings of baseball. So can you explain how that little nugget made it into the book? I used to live in Hoboken, New Jersey, so just on the banks of the Hudson across from Manhattan when I was a federal prosecutor. And Hoboken, famous, I don't know what it's famously, but proclaims itself with a lot of signs as the home of baseball, that the first organized baseball game was played in Hoboken, not in Cooperstown, New York. <laughs> There's a rivalry there. And I used to walk past the signs for Elysian Fields nearly every day on my way to work, and so I wanted to show that part to the readers as a because it's real. Those you want to go see those signs. Those are there. Baseball, the home of baseball is Hoboken, New Jersey. You spent several years as the FBI director, and your time there is well known. And I've always been interested when somebody's the director of the FBI. I, everybody always thinks there's an FBI investigation. Oh, Comey's doing this and Comey's doing that. How active is the director of the FBI in the day-to-day -day operations of actual investigations or? Uh, is it more of a figurehead type thing that you're the one that's catching the spears and arrows anytime something happens? How does that work? Yeah, you, just, you don't really do any of the work. You just get all the blame. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, yeah. In an organization of 38,000 employees, if the FBI director is deeply involved in investigations, something is seriously wrong with the institution. Your job as director of the FBI is to be the CEO and to communicate for the organization to advocate for it with Congress or the White House to make the bigger level decisions. The investigations are done, even the famous ones are done six, seven levels below the FBI director. Except on TV, where the FBI director is more attractive than I ever was, and <laughs> jumping out of helicopters and stuff like that. But that's all made up. The idea of Brady and the the it seems like it's a it's a huge issue for prosecutors, the constitutional duty to turn over any exculpatory material to the defense, whether they ask for it or not. Uh, is, that, is Brady something that you think about every day when you're in a prosecutor's office? Yeah, I, I did. Because, look, injustice happens. I innocent people get convicted in our criminal justice system, which is the best in the world, and still deeply flawed. And one of the ways it happens is people fall in love with their own virtue, with their own view of a case. And it, it may surprise people, but most injustice is not the product of ill will. It's the product of a, 
of a closed mind where someone believes they have found the killer of this innocent person, and so it shuts off their vision to things they ought to be doing. And so reminding your prosecutors and drilling into the culture that it's not about winning and losing, it's about the system and serving justice, which means you must turn over things that could help the defense, that your duty is to that. You're not a normal lawyer with a normal individual client. You represent an idea. That has to be the bedrock culture of every prosecutor's office. And I know a lot of people, when they think of the FBI director, they think he couldn't care less what goes on in Iowa. Not so for you, right? Oh, no. I am an adopted Iowa in a lot of ways. I started dating a very pretty girl from Iowa when I was 19 and then tricked her seven years later into marrying me. So I've been going to Iowa for since 1979, 1980. They let me touch a cow one time. I'm a kid from New York, and they mocked me for wanting to touch a cow. And I think they didn't have mobile phones back in those days, or I would have horrifying uh, images out there. But I can still remember them saying, hey, I just go there. Don't step in any of it. Go over there, touch that cow. And uh, I realized what a fool I was, but I have fallen in love with that amazing, amazing state, and I've been all over it. All right. Well, as far as fiction writing goes, you have knocked it out of the park with this one. The book is called Central Park West. It's the new crime novel from James Comey. It's the first of his new fiction writing career. Jim, I'm so happy that you shared this book with us and shared some time with us, and I thank you for joining me. It's great to be with you, Brian. Thanks very much. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcast. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. New York, New York.